Welcome to another exciting episode of Practice What You Teach, a weekly teacher podcast. I'm your host, Mr. Hare, and I am joined with my co-host, Mr. Lumpkin. Yo. Mr. Moreland. Hello. And an emergency pinch-hitting guest, Mr. Kylie. Hey, how's it going? We're doing pretty good, Mr. Kylie. Mr. Kylie actually filled in. So this is some behind-the-curtain magic. On Friday, we were tried to record an episode of our podcast, but had all kinds of technical difficulties. One, a host wasn't here. Two, we lost all of our recording. And three, we had to go get a new wire for the podcast microphone. So in having to do all that, we decided we're just going to record an emergency bonus podcast on Monday. And we're going to try to get one more before the holiday begins. So we'd like to thank Mr. Kylie for filling in for us on Friday and then joining us again on Monday. Oh, hey, I'm glad to be back. So I like to say thank you to Mr. Uh, Lumpkin for feeling better finally yeah. and joining us on our new episode here. And then I've got poll results coming in hot for me from Mr. Moreland. We've got a brand new poll this week and we have an old poll from last week. I then also want to go into some news stories. All four of us have a news story this, this week. So you're getting 33% more news story than you normally get. And then we've got our burning question. And I think this one's kind of a doozy. But I want to catch up. Mr. Moreland, how have you been? How have you been? What's your week doing this week? Uh, pretty good. I mean, last week was uh, all about the essay for 10th grade. We're slowly trekking towards the new SOL standards for English 10, which we're implementing uh, this year. This is the last uh, year that we'll have the same old SOL reading and writing test in one semester with 11th grade English like we've had before. Uh, so it's taking some time to adjust to the new standards and uh you know it's it's a little bit of a, of a slog but we're getting through it mr kyle is a co-teacher in my fourth block english 10 class so he kind of knows a little bit about what we're yep. talking about here with that so but other than that i mean we're doing pretty good this week's the last week before big winter break mm -hmm. uh and then the students are going to be coming back and that's when they're going to write the actual sol essay and take the actual sol test in 11th grade so English 10's SOL essay is going to be after the break, and English 11's SOL reading test is going to be after winter break. So it's kind of the wind down period of the semester. Excellent. Well, best of luck to all our students. I'm sure you guys will do great on your SOL. Mr. Lumpkin, I'm glad you're feeling better. It's good to have you with us. How are, what's going on? How's your week been? Well, I got hit pretty hard by the same cold that's been going around school for a while. I think <clears> I was even sick last time we recorded, but I, I'm very prone to getting sinus infections. And last week it finally came in and it kicked me hard. Otherwise, it's been it's the winding down part of the semester. I will agree with that. We just finished up content, nerve science today, and it was my favorite unit that finished it off. Talking about uh, aging, uh, rock layers, fossils, talking about dinosaurs for a little bit, getting into like the actual bigger concepts for geological time and what that means for the Earth's history. Stuff that I really feel really passionate about and was really excited for. But now that we're all winding down, getting ready for the break, everyone's ready for the break. And I'm just glad to kind of like see it through, coast through this week, and get to see some of that review before we get our SOL right after break as well. Awesome. Well, again, I hope your students are prepared. I know with you guys at the home, they've got nothing but the right tools. Mm -hmm. And I know they're all going to do great on their tests. Mr. Kylie, I know you co-teach for three or four different classes. Uh, I am in three different classes. And so you're always on the move and you're yep. going from room to room. <laughs> How has it been going for you? How's this week been? Um, so Mr. Moreland already touched a little bit on uh, our 10th grade class. So I'll talk a little bit more about my 11th grade classes. So um, with Mr. Moreland, we're um, finishing up our novel, A River Runs Through It. We'll hopefully get through that this week. And then in my third block with Ms. Westhafer, we're wrapping up a research project um, where students studied a, uh, or researched really a uh, 
prominent person in a field they're interested in going into after high school. Um, so that's almost wrapped up. And then we're going to be starting some SOL review. That sounds really good. Yeah. Again, I know with you three guys at the helm, all of our students are well prepared, so they'll be ready for it. Um, with this week, we've had a couple of cancellations of basketball games. I don't have a full list of that because other schools have been out of school. Um, so I will talk about sports next week when uh, the list comes from our assistant uh Athletic director here at the high school sends anything in. We've got the anime club meeting today, 1216. They're actually watching a anime outside. What are they watching this week, Mr. Moreland? They're watching Shingu's <clears throat> Secret of the Stellar Wars, which uh, is a very interesting anime about an alien invasion. Excellent. So. I'm always into the sci science mm -hmm. fantasy myself, and I'm definitely going to have to check out a piece of that episode. Um, we've got game club meeting this week on the 18th, correct? Certainly, yes. Okay, so that's going to be in our normal room, 345. Uh, you'll, we'll be there. You can always remember that's 345 on mm -hmm. Wednesday. So I do want to go right into our news stories. Uh, Mr. Lumpkin, what story do you have for us today? Well, I brought out something from a meteorological study for uh, – no, now I'm going to mess it up. Even though I looked it up. Mozambique. Now, my article name was like meteorologists can't keep up with climate change in Mozambique, but I think the climate change might be thrown in there for a little bit of clickbait. But even then, it, it's interesting looking at countries that are still considered, you know, your third world or a little bit behind the ball countries and seeing how these bigger effects, especially with how stormy this year has been, I think it's one that's been the wettest years on record recently, and how they're handling being able to predict some of the weather changes that are coming forward. Like the, the actual country of Mozambique has had two really horrible cyclones that have done some serious damage to their country. And they've been having to outsource a lot of their meteorological studies to be able to predict these storms to different countries and getting that information back and forth with like the lower in internet infrastructure and everything else going on in that country. It's been very interesting to kind of think about how those who are mo maybe most affected by some of the storms that we're seeing popping up, at least in recent memory, are the ones that might be the least prepared. And seeing how that can be its own human, like human-centric problem and seeing how we would build infrastructure and how to be able to best support people who are at most at risk. I think that's really interesting. Uh, I wanted to, to pull that out, the kind of just give a broader aspect to some of the, the stuff that's been going on this year as far as the damages from storms and disasters. Yeah, I know one <clears throat> article that I was reading earlier did speak about how the developing world is at most risk for climate change and how they are at most risk for these devastating storms. A nation like ours is able to band together large amounts of money to send assistance, but some of these more developing countries don't have that luxury. And so yeah. a, a storm like this can hit them and do untold devastation. It's always good to see you keeping your finger on the pulse of that. Mr. Kiley is our guest this week. We talked about this story. Mm -hmm. I really yeah. liked it. Now that Mr. Lumpkin is back, yes. I'm really excited yeah, you, to hear his take you on it. Said you said Tell me uh, about this story. Like so this is from uh, Science Daily. Um, when penguins ruled after dinosaurs, or wait, when penguins ruled, after dinosaurs died. Yes. Yeah, yes. yeah, yeah, that's that's what I'm supposed to say. Um, so I'm not going to lie, that is a little bit of hyperbole <laughs> um, in the article. It seems they might not have ruled the world. They might have ruled um, the seas around uh, New Zealand and Antarctica. Um, but 
Uh, the most interesting thing I thought about these penguins was that they were giant and human-sized, and they were the first ones that were um, similar in their anatomy to our current penguins we see today. So, yeah, uh, <laughs> and whenever we're getting into dinosaurs, there's definitely yeah. a, a little bit of interest down there. Yeah. So we're on the same page that most avian species are related to dinosaurs, right? Mm -hmm. This is really interesting to me because reading through this, not only is the idea of having a human-sized penguin just either absurd or terrifying. I'm not sure which, but I'm, I'm thinking about like dinosaurs, thinking about penguins being that bridging the gap between what you see for like, let me back up for a second. I said the dinosaurs and, and and avians, the birds in general, like really closely related. You don't normally look at a penguin, look at like a songbird, and see those relations. It's interesting to see that this actual split between the two was one right after dinosaurs started yes. off. Yep. That's ridiculous <clears throat> that it would happen so early. But I guess it would make sense that they would be the ones most posed, like take use of like around the coast because mammals weren't doing that mm -hmm. at least not yet well do penguins really give pebbles to the like female penguins Isn't like that that emperor penguins that yeah i think that's just yeah. emperor penguins yeah. but does it really happen though oh yeah the penguin and the pebble check yeah. it out if you haven't seen it the movie we definitely have to do that i guess it really does beg the question though would you rather fight one man-sized penguin or 100 penguin-sized men? That's the mm, question uh, I want to know here. Mm. <laughs> I think I would go I for the one-man-sized penguin. Okay. Yeah. Controversial topic there. <laughs> so I, am penguin I jumping the gun on the burning man. question? That's saying. what the story says. They were the size as people. I can, yeah. I can, you know, try and reason with the people that are penguin-sized. I don't know if I can reason with a penguin-sized, a man-sized penguin. I don't know. That's another way of like trying to figure this out. Like, do I use my charisma score or do I use my strength? Score? I just <laughs> think this question is for the birds. <laughs> Absolutely <laughs> right. Well, excellent story, Mr. Kylie. Yes, I knew you. Mr. Lumpkin yeah. would get a kick out of this, and I didn't want him screaming at his headphones while he was listening <laughs> to our episode no. this week. I actually pulled up, as always, something with quantum states and everyday electronics right now. Researchers from uh, the University of Chicago have created a quantum state inside an everyday electronic device, like a toaster. Now, we talked about this previously of why would you want a toaster to have quantum states in it? And the reason is allowing those quantum states would give you better energy control. It would allow us to then put quantum computers inside TVs and computers and eventually handheld devices so that we can turn our already smart devices with Siri into a quantum galaxy brain device. A quantum, quantum galaxy brain device theory does sound a little scary, but it would give you much better processing and much faster load times. So I'm very excited about it. I can't wait for this to reach into the video game sphere. Again, as I tell my students all the time, I am the final boss. So <laughs> with this, I am very excited that maybe one day we will have quantum technology that you can even have in your pocket. How long do you think it's going to take for that to become uh, affordable enough to implement in such a vast array of devices? That's a very good question. So I can tell you that with PCs and Mr. Moreland and I, uh, we will be able to tell you that we did not, I didn't have a PC in the home. No. My parents did not get one until the end of the 90s. Mm -hmm. And at the time it was exorbitantly expensive. My father bought one for my mother so that she could um, type up papers and, and such and uh, play Scrabble. Um, they went from being exorbitantly expensive in the late 90s 
to in almost every home by the beginning in the early aughts. Mm -hmm. So I would say Mr. Kylie and Mr. Lumpkin, you guys had computers in the home. Well, we certainly did. Although that was probably when I was, oh, we probably got our first PC when I was like seven. So yeah, late 1999, early, sure. early 2000. I, I remember <clears> the <throat> first one coming from my uncle. Mm -hmm. um, he, he let us have it. It was an old one he had. That would have been about 1996 or 97. Sure. Mm -hmm. So with that, we went within five years from being, being prohibitively expensive to everybody having one. Yeah. Even let's look at the iPhone. Almost everyone's got an iPhone or some sort of smartphone now. The iPhone was first introduced in 2007, mm -hmm. and almost everybody had one by 2010. Mm -hmm. So in about three years, it went to being affordable and accessible. A non-room size quantum computer is still a pipe dream. At the moment, most quantum computers are essentially the same size as they were with the old vacuum tubes. They're about the size of a room. Uh, some of them are the size of buildings. They are steadily getting smaller, and we should have a personal computer, a personal quantum computer size uh, within the next decade. So sometime in the 2020s, and then they'll probably be in homes in the 2030s. Um, with the proliferation, proliferation of technology, though, we may see that even sooner. There may be some breakthrough that we're not aware of yet. There may be something that keeps the machines in a persistent quantum state. Mm. Right now, quantum states have to be induced and then whatever we're going to get from them, we have to do there. Like, hey, it's in a quantum state. We got to do it now. And then once it's done, we have to turn that state off because if it stays, it will deteriorate. And uh, once it begins to deteriorate, we won't we won't be able to use it at all. Mm -hmm. so, that, that kind of brings me to what we talked a little bit about on Friday, Mr. Hare. Yes, sir. About um, this was comes from a conversation I had with a student on Friday. Um, so we were talking about how because our kind of computer processors, computer chips are getting so small that due to the nature of quantum mechanics, um, because they're getting so small, it's we the electrons are sort of not staying where they're supposed to. I kind of wanted to ask for your clarification on that a little bit. Absolutely. So uh, what happens is as processors get smaller, electrons have a harder time moving through those processors. So the smaller they are, the harder it is to keep the processor uh, powered because it's harder to keep that individual electron in the processor. Uh, if you imagine, and this is kind of a famous example in quantum mechanics, it's called the particle in a box. So if you imagine a box with walls that are infinitely high and infinitely thick, if you put a particle in that box, it cannot escape. So it can't drill through the walls because they're infinitely wide. And it can't climb out the box because they're infinitely tall. And we know the width of the box. We can call that anything we want. We can give it a random number. Most people use X. Like the width of the box from the zero point to the end point is just X is our distance. Um, we know with 100% certainty that the particle is in that box. It cannot escape. However, we also know that if we try to grab that particle and say, that particle is right here, we start to lose information. So by taking a measurement of its position, we lose its momentum. We just can't know with any certainty both of them. We can only know one of them. And we call that a complementary fair. So we have positional momentum. We have energy and duration or time. We have spin on all of the different axes. So there's three axes, X, Y, and Z. We can know the spin on X. We cannot know the spin on Y or Z if we know it on X. So the more we, the more information we have on one of these pairs, the less we have on the other. Um, when you have, say, a, a processor, if it's of a small enough size, then the electron can't be tracked because once we know where it is, we don't know how fast it's moving. 
And if we don't know how fast it's moving, then we don't know the current, therefore it's not working. It's one of those weird cases where when we try to get information, we lose information. And so that's why that's a, a impetus to get the quantum computers because we can only send ones and zeros through electrons. If we change that to photons, which are just particles of light, we can do one, we can do zero, and we can do one and zero at the same time. So it's, uh, it's going to be a massive leap in our computing capability. And that's why a lot of governments are trying to make them so that they don't get hacked. Because mm -hmm. if you have a password, you know, you have a password, let's say your password is password. Um, what would happen is, instead of trying every word in the English language to get into your computer, I can use my quantum computer and try every word in the English language all at once. And infinitely, boom, I'm in your computer and nothing you have is safe anymore. So... That's why uh, the electrons have a hard time moving around the processor when they get yes. small. Yeah, thank you for the details on that, Mr. No Hale. problem. I know it's it's nerdy and it's really into the weeds. Well, see, that's also why we've been doing the digital citizenship lessons. Absolutely. The students have been paying attention. That's why you make a, a more secure password. That's right. The techniques that you were supposed to have been taught during cougar time. That's absolutely right. Right now, we just have conventional computers, so everyone needs to practice password hygiene. And you need to be changing your password. 90 days is kind of long, but you need to be changing all of your passwords in your personal life and in your school or professional life. So if you have a work password, they make you change it. If you have a school password, I know we have to change ours every 90 days. Mm -hmm. But in, even at home, on your on your Twitter, on your Facebook, on your Instagram, on your Google Plus, you need to be changing your password as often as you think about it. So every month you need to have a new password. We're all practicing password hygiene here, right? Yes. I, I can say that with as most certainty as I floss every day. That <laughs> that makes me uncomfortable. <laughs> We're at school, they kind of at force school, us to do it. Uh, yeah. At school. Yes, um, I'm. I am not. No comment on. Uh, on my no comment on the. Uh, and I certainly on that <laughs> All right. Well, with all that being said, we now are on to your our fourth bonus news story. Mm -hmm. and again, we're getting more news than we can handle over here, Mr. Moreland. I'm very excited about this. I've actually been reading a lot about this. Tell me, what have you got over there for your news story? All right. Well, let me uh, set the mood a little <laughs> bit here. Um, Do I need to turn on some candles? No. Okay. Although that would be very artistic, which is what we're talking about. Uh oh. The art world was shaken recently. Were they stirred also? No, James <laughs> Bond did not make an appearance. Uh, there was an artist by the name of Maurizio Catalan. He's an Italian artist. And he made a art exhibit called The Comedian. And The Comedian is simply a banana duct taped to the wall. Now, that may not sound like real art to some people, but you gotta remember, Maurizio didn't just do this on a whim. He wanted to create something new and, you know, it, it was something that original. And he wanted to use the shape of a banana as an inspiration. So when he's in his hotel room, he would take a banana and tape it to the hotel room wall. And he did this for a long time. And then finally he realized something. He thought, Why, wait a minute. Why don't I just duct tape the banana to the wall at the art exhibit and make that my art piece? Well, needless to say, Comedian was a smash hit. To the tune of $120,000 for the first edition. 
the second edition sold for $120,000 as well. And the third was expected to fetch $150,000. Three bananas, three pieces of duct tape for a total three walls. of, yes, <laughs> three walls, no. well, maybe in the same wall, I don't know, but for mm, a total of $390,000. Now I'm, I'm no economist. That's a lot of money. Yes. Okay. Uh, well, tragedy struck or maybe not uh, because recently at a Miami exhibit of the comedian, not the comedian, but just comedian, uh, a man named David DeTuna walked up to the banana taped on the wall, removed the duct tape. By this time, the banana was brown and aging, according to the uh, news story that we're referencing here. It will be linked on the podcast. It was brown and aging when David DeTuna took it off the wall. Just minding its own business. David walked up, took it off, unpeeled the banana and took a bite. Now this is some kind of, this is just some sort of ne'er-do-well thief, right? No, no he is a, yeah, yes, isn't he's a, a yes. <laughs> Now, now we're getting somewhere. Tell me more yeah, about this. this. Is so, <laughs> the tuna claims that he is a performance artist and that his action was not theft and was not disrupting the art world, but it was art itself. He was escorted by security to a private room, but was not arrested. Uh, and now everybody's all up in arms or saying, what was this? Was this, you know, some kind of artistic thing? Was it like, you know, set up? Was it, you know, a, a critique of the art world? Like it, it, everybody's all confused and debating. Now, me personally, I believe that what David did was symbolic. I think that uh, the, the art is called comedian. Mm -hmm. And uh, I don't know if anybody knows this, but a lot of comedians now are becoming very, you know, resistant to performing, especially at college campuses due to the rise of, you know, the demand for politically correct language and things like that. I know Jerry Seinfeld, for instance, has said he will no longer perform at colleges for fear of being protested and, you know, things like that. So I think what David DeTuna did was a symbolic gesture signifying that trend. So just like the comedians have been taken down off of the stage, and eaten alive basically by the audiences who reject their jokes for being offensive. David took the comedian banana off the wall and consumed it. That's mm -hmm. right. And mm -hmm. ate it symbolizing the rejection of controversial thought and jokes. I mean, of course, you know, I'm being sarcastic this entire time. I don't think no, that, yeah, I, I was sold on yeah, all of that. I don't That's think the comedian is art. I think it's just a banana taped to a wall, but, I actually yeah, do respect David DeTuna for question. eating. Yeah, this is where so, with all that being yeah. said, and this is what watch this, fellas. <laughs> this is what it, we in the business call a tease. We're gonna come right back with our in-depth conversation about whether or not this is art. So don't go anywhere. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. And we're back to talk more about the comedian and then the consumption of, and this is the first version, right? Yes. Of the comedian. This is in no, Miami. It was, it was not the first comedian. It was one of the subsequent comedians. And this is in Miami. Yes. Mm -hmm. Now, this performance artist, his words, he claims to be, walked up to it, the comedian, which was a piece of artwork, which was 
uh, otherwise known as a banana duct tape to a wall. He removed the duct tape and the banana, removed the peel, and then consumed the banana. And then said that was a piece of performance art. Mr. Moreland brought this to our attention today, and I couldn't pass up an opportunity to have this conversation. I want to know, what does the panel think about this? Do they think it's art? Do they think it's theft? Do they think it's some sort of greater uh, commentary on America right now? Tell me what you guys thought, Mr. Moreland. I liked exactly what you have to say. I want to jump right in with Mr. Lumpkin. What do you have on this one? So all I'm going to do here is we're going to pull back just a tiny bit. Let go so, right ahead. If we're looking at the purpose of art or what is art even there for? Absolutely. It's the expression of an idea, right? It's Absolutely. the artificial expression of a concept to either make someone feel something or to express something or to provide visual whatever, um, uh, aesthetic beauty. I think Moreland proved his point, even though that might have been to his point, even being sarcastic, that the comedian itself being a banana taped to a wall very easily could be a piece of artwork because it's expressing an idea. Although it needed the actual background there to actually make sense of being an idea. But being an idea and being an expression that made someone feel something. Looking around the whole time we were talking about the comedian being a banana taped to the wall, we were all smiling, right? It was all causing us to feel an emotion. Whether that emotion was exactly what the guy wanted, what he taped a banana to, well, who knows? But it's a piece of artificial things that is made by, or at least put together by a human being, even though it was literally just taping a banana to a wall, that calls someone to feel something. And that, I would define that as art. However, then I also get into the weird, should we or shouldn't we? Should someone pay $140,000 for tape and a banana to a wall? But then you could go from there and be like, okay, well, he probably spent so much time working on art and there's a concept of art. You don't pay for art based on materials. You pay for the art based on like what you value that expression, what you value that idea, what you value the person's experience and time for. As far as the performance art and, and eating the banana being art, I am 100% for that. I, I think that... It is, in essence, we are taking it way too seriously from the first point in to say that a banana taped to the wall is worth that much money. But also that it can't be something that's interacted with, that it can't be something that is uh, critiqued or can't be something that is part of a larger expression. I, I, I find that, uh, for me at least, even though it's not an art form that I usually would partake in, I prefer ink and paints, I find that there's something of value there that even that again something of value that also deserves to be critiqued and uh, maybe humiliated or uh, that's not the right word poked fun at quite a bit. It deserves that, but I would I would still call it art. I would still call it a say that has value. I like that you're talking about value, Mr. Lumpkin, because mm. that's kind of what when we were talking about this on Friday. That was something we really ended up kind of focusing on like the value of the art as well. So my story, my take on this is kind of in two parts, I guess. Mm. So first I want to talk about the original piece, right? What we're talking about, the comedian, the banana actually duct taped to the wall. Mm. Well, yes, I agree with you, Mr. Lumpkin, that that I would still definitely call that art. 
In terms of modern art, though, I don't find it particularly interesting or innovative. Because, um, I mean, looking back a hundred years ago, you had Marcel Duchamp doing things like that with uh, ready-mades and the Dada movement. So to me, that, you know, I had seen uh, this, the comedian thing. I was like, oh, it's just another outrageous, like, you know modern art piece that's you know trying to shock people and i'm like whatever i've seen this a billion times like not really interesting to me but where the value really comes into this story i think was with the eating of the banana that just had me like um i called it a farce on friday like it just elevated it, it yeah and elevated it to this whole other kind of <laughs> thing that's just to me it's just hilarious like you know this i don't know if this was a catalan's original intention was to seem very serious or if he was kind of making a joke too but to me that was just you know not that interesting but then a performance artist coming in you know into like an art gallery which you know sometimes to me that environment can seem very pretentious and like very self-serious and yeah. sterile so to have something a very like um k this like chaotic force right coming in and disrupting that is where i think the real value came from i think that's a very fair a fair way of processing it, and i i would definitely agree although did we ever question the idea that someone's spending so much money on what is a perishable item yeah you know, right? yeah i didn't mention this when we talked about it friday but um there's this show that i used to watch when i was a kid because i was weird uh where this home fashion designer would like make all these weird things and i was watching re-watching some of the old episodes sounds like it would be a great youtube channel yes mm -hmm. there's one where he made a room divider out of fruit <laughs> real fruit and i'm watching this and i'm thinking i remember this when i was a kid and i remember thinking to myself well what are you gonna do when it rots and now i'm like 30 something years old watching it again and the first thing that comes to my mind is well, what are you gonna do when it rots so like, even if I was a kid watching that, I'd be like, this is just, you know, and it almost like harkens back to the emperor's new clothes story. Yes. It's like all these, you know, these art pieces that are supposed to be artistic and are supposed to be, you know, avant-garde and things like that. And it's just not even, you know, there's no value to it other than what people want to give it. Like my dad says, there's no value to anything except for what somebody's willing to pay for it. But in terms of the art world, I saw an Andy Rooney video recently, if anybody knows him. He was the old curmudgeon that was on 60 Minutes you know, a few years ago. He recently passed, but he did a piece about art, and he said Picasso <coughs> did this first, and it's like a literal like, you know, artistic piece of the human body that's very intricately detailed, very specific, and he said he could do this, and he shows one of the more you know, well-known Picasso pieces where it's abstract because he did the actual art first. He knew how to do what was, you know, classically considered art. So he was able to branch out and do different things because he was known to be a master of the original art first. So he could create new things following that. It's kind of like when I was in high school, our English teacher said, uh, you have to learn all the rules of English and grammar so you can break them. Yes. Mm -hmm. And that's kind of my concept of what art should be. Picasso was able to do what he did because he knew how to do what everybody else could do too. These artists that we see today may not have actually put in their, their, oh, you know, dues to be able to do what they're doing now and have it accepted as art. I think that's the biggest issue that I have really. 
I always have issue with that because, and, and I think it's a fair point, but I feel like it's a reactionary point, right? Because it's not so much necessarily that, okay, they're doing nothing. It's the fact that people who have done art, people that have, I really appreciate who don't get the attention they deserve, did this and spent so much time, so much effort, made that into their lifestyle. And then since they're trying to play it on the same footing, like trying to play it on the same field, saying like, okay, I could tape a banana to the wall and that's my art. Like, it's the comparison that ends up making issues. Art itself is just artificial creation. And it can be a beautiful, wonderful, dynamic thing with someone who is highly educated, highly skilled, perfect to their game. Art can be something that I taped up that my kid drew. And I feel like there's still value to both of those, whether I agree with the assessment of value, and no, because it's, a, it's something that's entirely human and something that someone's just gonna throw onto it. Yeah, and I see that, I guess that's another thing like we talked about on Friday was yep. the definition of the word art and how it loses its meaning when it's used over and over again. Yeah. So for example, I said uh, love, for example. Mm. Like if you say, I love my mom, I love my dad, I love my wife, and then you say, I love McDonald's, you basically place McDonald's in the same plane, on the same level as your wife. Attention athletes, if you are- And your parents. Winter sport and you are in need of getting treatment, uh, I hope nobody's in need of getting treatment. I hope not. That would not be good. Athletes, if you are in need of treatment, you can report to the training room. Thank you. But yeah, that's my hang up is that you place this word on this thing and then anything goes. It's yeah. like everything counts. Then in that case, you devalue art that's that actually worth something. You know, and, and I remember I, I had uh, – I had trouble with that, and I say that because I think that's just a limitation of the English language. Mm -hmm. Other languages have multiple words for love. So to represent that paternal love or familial love, they have a word for that. For the love that they have for a friend or platonic love, they have a word for that. And then, like you said, for a love of McDonald's or food or what have you, they have a different word for that. And I think that that's just a limitation of the English language, one the one we are all fluent in. I, I also have... And I, I really take your point about the art, like saying that this is art and this is art and this is art and this is art over time would diminish the value of the word art and the process of art. But I really like Mr. Kylie's word farce because a farce can be art. If a play is a farce or a play is a satire or that's something in real life where we ask that question, does art imitate life or does life imitate art? You know, those two things like, is it a joke when it's imitating something that exists? At that point, it's not a joke. It's a recreation, which is a lot of what art is. I think these two things taken together are greater than the sum of their parts. Again, that word farce is, is a phenomenal way to put this. <laughs> I think that, you know, I don't know that art has to be beautiful. I think art in of itself is a expression of the create of the human creative mind and spirit or some expression of skill. But I really like that if you were to see this and if, if this story, you know, taking out the eating of the banana, it's just if we were talking about the comedian, we'd say, yep, some guy paid one hundred twenty thousand dollars. That's that's the end of the story. Mm -hmm. You know, if you say, hey, this performance artist walked down the sidewalk and he was eating a banana in the art gallery, that would be a we'd get a laugh and we'd move on. But the taken together. Mm -hmm. Where this was done as art, that was $100,000 art, and then this performance artist came in and ate that art. 
Now, if the question becomes, is the art still there? Is the art no longer there? The conversation we're having, I think, is indication of it being art. Because Dante's Inferno is a story of tragedy. And it's a terrible story. And it talks about a man who has to fight through literal seven circles of hell. No one would consider this art, but it is considered a classic. If you were to ask anyone at the time, any literate person mm -hmm. about Dante's Inferno, they might not say in the time, no, that's not art. And here, 500 years later, we consider it the pinnacle of art to talk about Dante's Inferno. And so I think that while this is not going to rise to that level of Picasso mm -hmm. or even Dante's Inferno, I do find that it is a farce. It is artistic and taken together. It is greater. You know, the art itself is greater than the sum of its parts. And that real again, the conversation that we're having is illustration enough that art is to be debated and art is to be enjoyed. I have gotten a lot of enjoyment out of this and it's conversation following. So David DeTuna really did make the art worth more by eating. Oh, he did. Yes, Absolutely. So. And now Absolutely. this question as to whether or not when the banana reappears following, you know, the typical human body performance, will that be considered art? Well, I would argue no. Post-humorous. <laughs> Post-humorous, yeah. That's the question. I mean, I guess, like, how far do you take it? That's that's. I, I think us taking this conversation seriously is far enough. Mm -hmm. right? I don't know that, <laughs> you know, I, you know, there are still two of these that also sold for, sold for more that's right true. now. David Dutuna yeah. apparently is a free man. He is so. a free man, and he is a performance artist. We'll see what happens. Plus, nature may take its course, and those bananas will eventually become brown and they will rot. And then at what point is, you know, I don't think the people who could afford to pay as much money as they could to buy those pieces want a rotten banana on their wall. Do they refresh the banana? I don't know. Fresh banana? Yeah. Hold on. I will say this. There was a painting of the Virgin Mary. And I remember this vividly from my high school days where it was a vision. Uh, it was a painting of the Virgin Mary that used elephant dung. Mm -hmm. And that was considered art, and it was up in the New York Museum of Art for a month before enough people complained had to take it down. Yeah. So I would say they might want that riding banana. Hmm. Well, I think it's it's pretty objective to say that that art piece in particular really stunk. It did. So, it no, did. Just saying. I don't know. I think that I think taken together, I I love this story. I love everything about this story. I I think this is exactly the kind of story that we need um, to, to really look at art in an objective and creative way. Uh, even the performance art of eating the banana was amazing. I, I really enjoyed it. I, that, that was a great burning question and new story rolled into one. Thank you, Mr. Morris. Yes. Well, we could get into the conversation about video games as art. I, you know, I, you know my stance on video games as art. I, I'm, I'm firmly in the video games are art uh, camp. Unfortunately, it was not kept because of the technical difficulties, but I uh, said to that, I think some video games are art. In particular, yes. one example would be Shadow of the Colossus. Which I disagree. I don't think but that you Shadow just of the Colossus said is all video art. games are art. I do believe that all video games are art, but I think Shadow of the Colossus is they did put 12 colossi or whatever they're called and you run around with your little sword and chase them. 
I don't, how could how could all video games be art if that's you know, not art and it's a video game? And where's the division then between an open world game and between, hey, here's a horse and here's a sword, kill some good colossi. Yeah. Oh, no, I, I, I'm not saying that all horses and sword games are not <laughs> art. I guess like this one specific game and its four remakes are not art. Okay. No, I, I, I'm being pedantic and I'm trying to, <laughs> to be argumentative. But yeah, I, I do believe that all video games are art. I, I do believe that, even Shadow of the Colossus. I think Sekiro, game of the year. Oh God, Thank yes. you, Game Awards, for getting it right this year. Deserved. What about E.T. for the Atari? It, you know what? That was buried art. Well, it is buried art. That would actually make that better art, too. Digging it up was the best part about it. Absolutely right. I feel very strongly about video games being art. I, I think that art is supposed to bring us together, or at a minimum, bring us to conversation. And I find that video games have brought my students together better than any content I could create. Uh, as much as I talk about physics, I do find that if I say, let's talk about video games, everyone's going to be engrossed. So I, I really like video games as art. I think that if you were to tell me there's a one, you played a video game once and it was to, to delete itself at the end, um, I would say that is art. Uh, shout out to uh, Nier Automata, um, which does that very thing. Spoiler alert. Um, but I do think video games are art. I do. And as two of the of the game club's uh, other uh, patrons here, I do think that you guys would think that as well. Well, like I said, I think some are. Uh, most of the of the ones that I would say are probably not art would be most sports games. I mean, how many Maddens qualify as art? You know, Madden, good question. Twenty twenty Madden. That's a fair when you become so formulaic, is it no longer art? Is it just like a there is one game I like to give a shout out to because a lot of people don't know about it. And it's a very, you know, uh, what's the one I'm looking for? It's a very niche kind of game. It's called Rune Factory Frontier. And it's on the Wii. Mm -hmm. And that that's one of the only Rune Factory games in particular that I would argue is like the closest thing you could possibly get to like art as a game and also like just really in depth like it's it's not necessarily open world but it's like open ended and it's one of my favorite games i still haven't beaten it but i don't even know if, if i would want to because it's just you can get lost in that game and it's, it's really good and a lot of people don't know about it and they've made like sequels to it there's like rune factory two three four etc there's a new one coming out for it's like a remake of four for yeah the switch that. and rune factory five is coming out but for some reason, they've, they've never been able to catch my attention as much as they did with Rune Factory Frontier. I have a question then. Do you think that Tetris is art? I would say Tetris is part of what led to Glasnost with the Soviet Union because it kind of opened up the Western world to this idea of, you know, people in Russia could appreciate something, you know, like a game. Sure. And I think that was a very good example of how there's more we have in common than we have different. Yeah, I, I would say that's true. Uh, I, I, speaking purely as a scientist, I think Tetris is fascinating. Um, I kind of wanted to bring up sort of a deeper question for what we've been talking about, um, just about video games and everything, just kind of what's been circling in my head with all of you talking just now. So kind of circling back to our uh, the nature of art or the purpose of art, uh, question. So it seems like what some of you are saying, right, with the Madden games or Shadow of Colossus, it's so are we kind of, or are you, are me too, I include in this, are we willing to accept art if it's something, or accept something as art if we don't agree with, um, you know, the purpose behind it? 
or if we don't think it's, you know, we'll just say if it's, if we think it's bad, does it still count as art? Does art have to be good, whatever, you know, whatever uh, sort make, of considerations we're taking in? Yeah. Do we make art an objective thing or is it a subjective thing? Yes. Well, I mean, I'm sure that there's some Madden games that are great. I mean, I play, I used to play NHL games and they were really good. I kind of got off that because I'd rather place things on the switch now and they just, they refuse to make NHL <laughs> for the switch for some reason. But um, time and budget. Yeah, I would say that here's the thing. I don't consider the sports games to be art, but I would also consider them to be like the banana tape to the wall of video games. I mean, you know what I mean? Like I may not think they're art, but somebody who's playing it might be like, look how the the characters, like the physics and the graphics and the the plays, like all this, you know, you could make it into an artistic, you could make an argument for why it would be artistic, but I would say, yeah, no, it's, it's, it's the actual game itself, I think. Actually watching real people play the sport is more artistic than the game recreating it. But I understand the demand for it. I mean, I think they're, they're fun games. There's something you can play with everybody. Like most, even people who don't like video games necessarily would play a sports game maybe. And that's a good way to connect with people. But I wouldn't necessarily call it art. So. Art is a human-made concept, right? Yes. And, and based on that, it's inherently subjective. Subjective in the value that other people put to it, subjective in the way that it's developed by those people. So I would have to say by that, it has to be, right? Because anyone that's putting that into it is putting themselves into it, putting their 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 own tint to it, and we're all experiencing it. And I think that's what makes art such a beautiful medium. And like the idea of art is our subjective experience in sharing that. So I think if that shared aspect isn't there, or at least if the, the way that we're sharing it is very counter-opposed, I feel like, yeah, it's fair to say that thing is not art to me. Mm-hmm. But I don't know, that's a tough one because I haven't really approached that before because it, it's it's odd because I want to say that anything that's made by somebody that's used to express an idea, which would be an objective, no, that wouldn't even be objective, would it? Because mm-hmm. you'd have to then value saying that there's, they're trying to express something or something is there expressed at all. Because if I just wrote a one, well, I guess then I could probably sell that one too, huh? Yeah. Uh, that's, yeah. <laughs> that's the danger of calling everything art. Yeah, it is. You, you, know, have, I, you have no way to, to qualify what art is. I, yeah. I come down on the side that any human endeavor that is something you choose to do and not something you have to do is art. That's fair. Um, I find that that's noble. I like that. Yeah. I I've played a lot of video games in my time. Um, in fact, I, I'll be candid with you all. The the best ending to any video game I ever played was 2008's Prince of Persia, and mm. I've played a lot of video games. I love Prince of Persia. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a game full of what one of my very good gaming buddies uh, used to call it stupid jumping tasks. <laughs> but I I really it is a very good way of phrasing. Yeah. I. The, the reason why I really liked the 2008 version was it was more cell shaded. It was very brightly colored. Uh, the main character, the prince, is uh, a rogue. Uh, he's a ne'er do well. He's a thief. Uh, he's not the well refined British accented character of the other one. Straight up, an entire prince and like all this background and nobility behind him. Yeah. But chooses to be all of this, yeah. right? Um, and he's running around with this uh, female character who, uh, unlike other Prince of Persia games, you can't fall off a cliff. She'll always save you. And uh, you play the whole game, and this is spoiler alerts for an 11-year-old kid. Yeah. But at the end of the game, you fight the big evil, and you seal him away. And you find out that the girl that was helping you was resurrected. And the power that resurrected her was the power that they needed to seal this thing. 
and you kill the great evil and she dies in your arms and you place her on this uh i guess it's, tomb. it's like an altar, an or, altar. or something yeah and the game is over the game ends that's it go home kind of and then, <laughs> and then the credits play and and then and unlike other games where the credits play and then you're put back to a safe state you're given control of the character and at that point, you're able to go out of the temple and uh, destroy these trees, these four trees. You climb these things and you destroy these trees. And the trees are a part of the sealing mechanism that killed the great evil and took her away. And I remember halfway through the second, getting to the second one, because I couldn't stop. Yeah, of course. I was compelled. Yeah. And I just, I could not stop. And I thought, I'm going to release this thing to get this girl back. And that was a choice because the game clearly says the game is over, but you can go and release those four trees. And then you go back to the altar and you pick her up and you walk out and then a sandstorm comes and that's the end of the game. Of course, there's a DLC story expansion yeah. that explains why she's very upset with him because yeah. of this. But that ending had such a profound impact on me. Because I did not know that I would be releasing the great evil until halfway through. It's like, I'm, I went ahead with that decision. I really enjoyed it. I would play that game again. Can you believe how many people hate that ending? How can, you, how can you so like much. that but don't like Shadow of the Colossus? <laughs> <laughs> it's the same concept. No, no because Shadow, Shadow, of Colossus, Shadow of the Colossus, Shadow of Colossus <laughs> is a prequel to eco and i just don't want that in my video game again it's a playstation exclusive and you know that's half the reason why i don't think nathan drake is art and that's just my opinion you're you're being Whoa. hypocritical i am very much so and that's okay because i admit it but i i just i i do you know i really do think that you know i think god of war is art um i love god of war it's one of the greatest video game series yeah, i really want to you should try it out it's really good i've been playing breath of the wild lately and i'm just blown away at how how much i missed playing as this character with a green floppy hat uh he still is not my guy toon link who will always be the standard bearer but that is enough of that we are coming to the end of our episode we will have more of this next week but we have our poll we have to talk about our poll which mr morland so graciously pulled up for us yes uh so to keep in line with what we talked about today it was a very long conversation but it, i think it was a good conversation uh hey at mphsva cougars that's you guys our discussion dealt with the art world this week we want to know do you think that the eating of the art piece comedian also known as a banana taped to a wall, is an artistic presentation or theft? And the choices are, it's art, it's theft, or it's both. I think an mm. act of theft could be art. I do mm. find that. So you can find that poll and other polls at PWUT Podcast or P-What? P-What Podcast at what podcast I, I really appreciate you coming along and doing this again with us mr kylie it's been great i really loved your insight i want everyone to be on the lookout for some things today we're going to have one more episode this week we're going to try really hard to squeeze it in with all of our schedules being kind of busy with sol prep and the holiday coming up no promises but we will do everything we can any final words you guys want to shout out mr lumpkin and mr morley mr kylie shoot i'm just happy to be here with you guys i had a good <laughs> party with mr morley this past uh, yeah. weekend and 
I'm, I, I'm glad that we're, we're getting through to the Christmas break, and I'm just looking awesome. forward to it. Any yes. last words, Mr. Moreland? I would just say uh, those of you who are really stressed out about classes, just keep on trucking. It's only uh, four more days before winter break, and then when mm -hmm. we get back, only a few weeks left of the semester until you have a whole new set of classes, a whole new set of teachers. I mean, we'll miss the students we have, but – We'll be happy to see some new faces. Excellent. Mr. Carlin, and, uh, any final words? Yeah, just thanks for having me on again, guys. Um, yeah, well, happy to be here. Glad to have you. Hopefully, if we get another absurdist piece of art, you're, <laughs> yeah, you're going to be yeah. the first person we yeah, call. Yeah. <laughs> Maybe your sweater that you're wearing. <laughs> hey, I hope it wins. That's a great yeah. sweater. So, as always, guys, thank you for listening. Thank you for your feedback. We're looking for questions, so feel free to reach out to us. As always, we will be back next week, or we're going to try to. It's a holiday, but at a minimum, we will try to get one more out this week, and it'll be an interview with a brand-new teacher. Thank you for listening. Good night, and good luck.